I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jonathan Oberlander, a professor of social medicine and of health policy and management at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Professor Oberlander has written a perspective article on the history of U.S. health policy. Professor Oberlander, your article focuses in part, of course, on health insurance coverage. And you note that in the past, the American Medical Association was a steadfast opponent of reform. What were the reasons for that opposition from organized medicine? Indeed, the AMA opposed virtually any type of expansion of government coverage throughout the 20th century, everything from national health insurance to uh, federal funding of states for maternal and child care to the Medicare program, which the president of AMA uh, called in the 1950s uh, at least nine parts evil to one part sincerity. So they had a long record of being literally Dr. No uh, when it came to government insurance. And I, I think if you ask why was AMA so opposed to health care reform, to efforts to expand coverage through much of the 20th century, it really had to do with what the sociologist Paul Starr has called the professional sovereignty of American physicians. They wanted control over their terms of employment. They wanted to maximize their clinical autonomy and their financial autonomy. Uh, they were afraid of working for other organizations. They were afraid of third parties, particularly insurance companies, uh, getting in the way of that sovereignty and encroaching on that sovereignty that they had worked to expand. And so this really was a slippery slope argument, and that's why they opposed any expansion of government health insurance. They were afraid once you set the precedent that it would result in a real erosion of their clinical autonomy, uh, their financial autonomy, and their ability to dictate uh, their terms of work. But the AMA did endorse the current law, the Affordable Care Act. What changed? I think the AMA's endorsement of the Affordable Care Act is, in a sense, an underrated story. We haven't talked enough about it. The AMA president at the time, Cecil Wilson, in uh, late 2009, was at a press conference with Harry Reid, uh, majority leader of the Senate, giving the AMA's endorsement of that version of the Affordable Care Act. It really was a remarkable picture, if you think about the history of the AMA's involvement. And it's a shift that, frankly, has been a, a long time coming. Uh, from about 1920, when the AMA House of Delegates declared its steadfast opposition to any form of compulsory health insurance, for the next half century, the AMA opposed, as we said earlier, any expansion of government health coverage. Uh, after that, their power really began to erode, uh, really marked by the enactment of Medicare and Medicaid and the rise of uh, cost control as an issue in the 70s. And so the AMA today is a changed organization. Its role is not what it once was. It's not as dominant as it was. And so I think the leadership has a different political calculus uh, than the AMA leadership would have had four or five, six decades ago. The political power of physicians is fragmented across a lot of specialty societies. The AMA does not itself represent as many physicians as it used to. So it's protecting a territory that has shrunk. It's protecting a ter territory that suffered a major incursion, not from the government, but from private insurers in the form of managed care 
in the 1990s. And I think the AMA leadership came to believe that expanding health insurance coverage in the United States was important uh, morally, was important ethically, and was also in the organization's self-interest. But I I believe that the AMA's leadership and their membership uh, is enlightened compared to where they stood four or five decades ago. Speaking of politics, you say in your article that if the United States had a parliamentary system, we probably would have adopted universal insurance coverage decades ago. Was there actually any period in our history when there was a greater hope for universal insurance? If the United States had a parliamentary system, my article could have been a lot shorter, and so could all the teaching that I do. And uh, this is something that really we tend to overlook. We often talk about why the United States is not like other countries and why we have this vast uninsured population. And we focus on the opposition of interest groups like the AMA, like the insurance industry, and that plays an important role. And we focus on Americans' ambivalence about government, and that anti-government strain of political thought also is important in understanding why we don't have universal coverage. But really, political institutions are incredibly important as well. And if you go back to Harry Truman and the very first proposal for national health insurance uh, in the mid 19 40s. Uh, and if you think about Harry Truman and uh, the Democratic Congress that he had after he was reelected in 1948, we probably would have had national health insurance if we had a parliamentary system way back then at the end of the 1940s. Um, certainly, we would have had it in the early 1970s. Uh, and so when there was another tremendous opportunity uh, for universal coverage, and I, I think what's happened over time is that reformers who keep losing the battle for universal health insurance, uh, what they have done is compromise and narrow their ambitions over time. And with each successive round of national health insurance, they're really asking for less. And until the last episode, they got nothing. Now, finally, they have something, but it, and it's, it's an important thing that the Affordable Care Act represents, but it probably, in some senses, is less than they would have gotten decades ago if we had a different set of institutional arrangements. Today, the political parties seem in many ways to be more divergent than ever. What are the effects of that kind of polarization on health reform efforts? And what do you see as the possible changes going forward? The way that political scientists measure polarization, the United States Congress at present is more polarized by ideology and by party than at any point since the Civil War. So there is an extraordinary level of polarization in the Congress right now. And that was absolutely reflected in the 2009-2010 health reform debate. It's reflected in the fact that the um, final legislation for the Affordable Care Act, not a single Republican voted for it, even though some of the central ideas in that act, in fact, were supported by Republicans in the past. And I think the major impact of this polarization is that it makes it very difficult to find a middle ground, very difficult to do bipartisan things in health policy. And we have a history of bipartisanship in some areas of health policy. We saw it in Medicare payment reform in the 1980s, and uh, we saw it with the adoption of the Children's Health Insurance Program in the 1990s. It's very difficult to find that kind of bipartisanship today. I think it's going to be very hard to find it 
uh, going forward. It depends on the results of the 2012 election, but there's a good chance that we could be even more polarized in Congress after the next election. And so when we think about these upcoming battles over Medicare, over Medicaid, as well as the Affordable Care Act, they're going to be battles that are fought largely on partisan grounds. You know, too, that the Affordable Care Act won't take us all the way to universal coverage, that even if the projected enrollment uh, targets are met, 30 million people will still be uninsured. What do you think realistic next steps might be for policymakers to get closer to universal coverage? Uh, we've invented this term in the United States, near universal coverage, and it's a imprecise term. Uh, what is clear is that while the Affordable Care Act represents a historic expansion of coverage in the United States, even if it is implemented as scheduled, the Congressional Budget Office currently projects that 30 million Americans a decade from now aren't going to have health insurance. And I think the problem is we're not talking about any next steps at the moment. Right now, the struggle is around preserving the Affordable Care Act, about implementing the Affordable Care Act, and trying to hit the targets that we have. In terms of realistic next steps, um, the first thing we've got to do is make sure that everyone who is eligible for a subsidy, for private insurance, or for enrollment in Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act is actually receiving those subsidies and is enrolled in Medicaid. And that is going to be a significant challenge. States vary very much in terms of what percent of their eligible Medicaid populations, for example, that they have enrolled. And uh, it's going to be a, a tremendous effort to get states that are on the low end of that distribution up to par. Uh, when you're talking about enrolling more people and, and working on bringing the number of uninsured down in the future, I think the next steps would have to involve increasing the subsidies that we have and expanding uh, the eligibility standards for Medicaid and to get subsidies in the exchanges. Th those two things are certainly doable, and the Affordable Care Act is not written in stone. It's a foundation that you can improve on. On the other hand, uh, it's going to take money to do that. It would absolutely take more money. And with the uh, austerity politics hanging over us and concerns over the burgeoning federal deficit, I think it's going to be quite difficult to do in the short term. The long term is a different story. We'll have to wait and see. In fact, you talk further about health care costs in your article and, and budgets. And you note that since cost control has been defined largely as a budgetary problem, the federal government focuses on reducing federal spending. Is it right to think that if we'd established a single-payer system, we might have been able to control costs more broadly better? I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, the United States has the most expensive health care system in the world. And when you think about the problems in the financing of American medical care, many of the problems have to do with the fact that we have a very fragmented multi-payer system with many different insurers uh, who all play by different rules and pay insure, uh, pay excuse me hospitals and physicians different amounts of money. We waste an incredible amount of money on administration in terms of billing. Uh, all of those things would not happen in a single-payer system. You would have tremendous savings because of administrative simplification. It would also be a much more equal healthcare system. 
a single-payer system would also allow you to really confront the high prices that are a major contributor to rising costs in the United States. And if you look to our neighbors to the north, Canada, they had a very similar health care system to the United States well into the 20th century. And uh, really, the explanation for why their system costs so much less than ours while providing universal coverage is that they have a single-payer system. In other words, a single uh, insurer in each province where the government pays all the bills. So I think there's no question that that would give us much greater leverage over health care costs. We do have to caution, though, that it does depend exactly what that system would look like and how you implement it. Our own Medicare program is sort of a mini single-payer system. And for the first 15 years or so of Medicare, it uh, essentially wrote a blank check to the healthcare industry and really only got in the cost control business in the 1980s. So implementation does matter. It matters, again, that American political institutions constrain the possibilities for action by policymakers in the United States and give opportunities for interest groups to block change. Uh, but if you're looking for a robust solution to healthcare spending in the United States, it's certainly substantively single payer, which is why it is extraordinarily difficult to get it politically. The problem with single payer politically is not that it wouldn't work. The problem is that it would work. The Affordable Care Act does include a range of approaches to cost control, although not uh, single payer, of course. Among those that it does include are delivery system and payment system changes, approaches that alter the financial incentives for healthcare providers. Which of those do you think might work? What the Affordable Care Act does is really twofold. First of all, it has some very substantial Medicare savings um, that mainly come from simply clamping down on excess Medicare payments to private insurance plans, the so-called Medicare Advantage plans, and reducing the rate of growth in Medicare payments to hospitals. And I think of all the savings in the Affordable Care Act, those are actually the most solid. Um, Those are are going to be real savings, and I think they're also very important savings uh, to enhancing the financial integrity of Medicare going forward. When you look beyond Medicare, what the Affordable Care Act does is really take a sort of kitchen sink approach. We sort of throw every idea that exists in the health policy community from accountable care organizations and medical homes to bundled payments, comparative effectiveness, research, um, as well as a tax on very high-cost private insurance plans, the Cadillac so-called Cadillac tax that's scheduled to go into effect in 2018. We throw all those ideas at once, and the sort of the idea here, like throwing darts, is if we throw all the darts at the board at once, we hope that one or two of them will stick, and we we don't know ahead of time um, which ones are going to work. I think it's very difficult to say which one of those are going to work. In fact, it's difficult to say whether any of them are going to work. I don't think there's any question that we're going to need, if the Affordable Care Act um, survives in November elections, we're going to need down the line stronger cost control. I, I don't believe that what's in the act is going to be sufficient. It's a start. Uh, and some of these ideas may work, and they may work, by the way, even if they don't save any money. They may improve coordination of care. Uh, they may improve quality of care. And the standard in American health policy should not be that if a reform does not save money, 
it's not a good reform. That's not a good way, I think, um, to think about American health policy. But if we're focusing just on cost control and we're thinking of those ideas, many of them are, are, are really in some sense wishful thinking. We don't have enough evidence or experience with them yet. And maybe some of them will turn out well, but I suspect, as I said before, that we're going to need something on top of what we've already got, something like an all-payer system that would create a situation where all the insurance companies in a given region, public and private, would be paying the same rate. Something like that that would really get at some of the problems that we have. And uh, there's one thing I think you can say for sure, and that is there's going to be, regardless of the future of the Affordable Care Act, tremendous pressure for the government to do a better job of controlling health care spending because of our situation with the budget. That budget pressure is going to produce tremendous incentives and tremendous political pressures to control the growth of health care spending in our public insurance programs and beyond. But if we're thinking, as you asked originally, you know, what of, of the darts that we're throwing on the board, what is most likely to hit, I guess my bet would probably be on bundled payment and on delivery system changes that include something like bundled payment. And the reason I singled that one out is because it's directly about payment. And so I think it has more direct leverage potentially on spending. Part of the success of the current reform lies in the hands of the states. And some states are choosing not to expand their Medicaid programs, not to establish their own insurance exchanges. How will state politics or federal state politics affect the future of the reform effort in the United States? The Affordable Care Act very much reflects what we call the political genius of federalism and the idea that uh, the federal government doesn't have to do it all and can use states and give states flexibility and states, many of whom have expertise in health care, let them try their own ideas out and get some variation. Uh, and that was held up as, as one of the strong points of the Affordable Care Act. And it turns out that it has actually become a weakness. Uh, and it's become a weakness because I think of the unexpected level of state resistance to elements within the Affordable Care Act. Certainly, in the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling upholding the Affordable Care Act, we know that states are going to be able to opt out of the Medicaid expansion without suffering a financial penalty of losing their federal Medicaid funding. And several governors, in, uh, including the governors of Florida and Texas, have said they are not going to participate in that Medicaid expansion. Uh, other states have said that as well. Uh, my guess is the vast majority of states will take the Medicaid money because it's a tremendous deal for them, uh, a great deal for their economy, and a great deal for their providers. And they're going to get pressured uh, from hospitals in particular to take those funds. But we are going to have some states, at least initially, who stay out of the expansion. And there are a lot of uninsured Americans in Florida and Texas. And if those states stay out of the Medicaid expansion, it is going to drive up the number of uninsured that are left after the Affordable Care Act is implemented. We've also seen this pattern of state resistance with exchanges. And again, there's a, a probably a group right now of around a half a dozen states who have said they are not going to set up health insurance exchanges, which are these marketplaces where the uninsured and small businesses would go to buy coverage. And I think the exchange story in particular is interesting because that was a Republican idea originally, a conservative idea that is still embedded in conservative proposals for health care reform. And what really explains state resistance in those states where it's happening to the exchanges is 
political polarization and the same ideological and partisan polarization that we see in Congress and in Washington is happening at the state level. And so what that means for the future of the Affordable Care Act is, in the short term at least, we're going to continue to see uh, partisan fights at the state level over implementation of Medicaid and the exchanges. Now, the calculation of those states may change decisively one way or another after the November elections. A lot of states are sitting on the fence right now, and some of them are hoping that uh, Mitt Romney wins and the Affordable Care Act goes away. Others are biding their time, and uh, if Barack Obama is reelected, they'll go ahead uh, with the exchanges and the Medicaid expansion. Uh, but I think we're in for an era of health policy that has a lot of partisan division at all levels of government, state as well as federal. In your article, you make a moral argument about the suffering and insecurity that have been inflicted on Americans by flawed U.S. health policy. Is that an argument you think physicians should be making, and is it an argument that might actually sway policymakers? Moral arguments certainly are not decisive in health care policy. If they were, we would have adopted health care reform 40 or 50 years ago. The problems we have in American medical care are worse today. There's no question about that. But the problem of living with millions of Americans who don't have adequate access to doctors, um, who live in fear of financial bankruptcy, who have insurance coverage that is inadequate and leaves them exposed if uh, they have a serious illness. These are long-standing problems, and uh, we've made, reformers have made moral arguments for many, many decades, uh, and it hasn't really moved policymakers. And so while I believe uh, the moral part of this is very important and it is imperative, and I believe that physicians should embrace the moral imperative that all Americans, regardless of their income and regardless of their health status, should have access to health insurance. Uh, I, I don't believe that ultimately is, is what's going to be decisive in this ongoing health care reform fight. I think what's going to be decisive is the political arguments for people who already have coverage. And really the, the challenge for reformers and, and highlighting the many contributions that the Affordable Care Act makes to Americans' health security is to focus Americans' attention on what the law is going to do for people who already have coverage, that it's going to give them new benefits, that it's going to expand Medicare benefits, that it's going to allow them to keep their kids on their coverage, that it's going to get rid of lifetime limits on health insurance benefits, and that while it makes coverage for the uninsured more accessible and more affordable for the insured, it makes their coverage more secure. I think that's the argument that reformers and physicians are going to have to embrace and um, try to persuade people about if we are going to win the health reform fight going forward. Thank you, Professor Oberlander. Thanks so much for having me.